Dr. McDaniel, thanks so much for uh, coming today and for giving us such a, a brilliant uh, presentation. Um, I think we all learned a great deal. One of the things that I want to focus on is the, your, your comment about the, inequal, the une unequal distribution of wealth and the effect that it has on, on, on people. Um, it seems to me that uh, the only way that uh, that can be handled is through education and through people demanding that we change our, our habits in, ter in terms of having the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Um, with uh, the enormous Harvard School of Economics effect on all our universities across North America and our schools, uh, even here in Lethbridge, increasing their business section by leaps and bounds uh, as compared with other areas, what hope do you think there is for people changing that unequal distribution of wealth? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, let me thank you for your kind comments because that will give me a moment to, to think about that. Uh, this is like uh, if I were in charge of the world kind of comment. <laughs> um, what's interesting, though, is, and I don't have it here, unfortunately. Well, I do. I have a graph that shows this. But if you look at the way in which income, I'm looking at income inequalities, not wealth inequalities. They're two separate things, really. Overlapping, but separate. Um, the, if you look at the, the way income inequalities have come to be, it's a really interesting story because the way I tend to think as, a, as an analyst, as a, you know, a researcher, is we can't figure out a solution unless we figure out how we got there. And the way that we discover how we got there is remarkably quickly. I mean, the, the reality is most of us are going along the same wage rate as before without our wages going up, as I mentioned, stagnation. What's happened is this monumental increase in wages and salaries for, for top CEOs and bonuses and all of that that have gone up like by leaps and bounds instantly. So there's almost been a change in the, in the zeitgeist and the, the image that these people are worth a lot. And what has happened, and, and that they're worth a whole lot more than the person who's actually making the widgets on the floor or whatever, uh, the cars or what, whatever. And this has now become part of universities. Not this university, but so many universities, particularly those in the states where they pay their presidents the way they would pay a CEO of a major corporation. And the concept of universities has been always very much like the concept of hospitals, that you have a head of a department or a CEO of a hospital that's a colleague who's moved up into administration, but it's not, you know, better than you, it's a colleague. And, 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 you know, and then the colleague will come back to the ranks when they're finished with their administrative role. But we've changed all that now so that we hire, we hire, we, I should say, some universities hire CEOs like they hire CEOs of Chrysler. And the, the, what interests me is the sense of entitlement, and we've seen all this, the notion that people say, uh, well, you know, this is occurring everywhere. We couldn't possibly get these people unless we paid them millions of dollars. Well, it was only 20 years ago we weren't paying them millions of dollars and we got them and they managed better. So what the heck has been happening? And that's what we've got to figure out is how to ratchet that debt back. And even 
Obama's administration who says they have a czar for for watching all this, whatever a czar is called for watching the CEO salaries or something, for the companies that the United States government has a lot of a lot of money involved in, like GM, they still say, well, you know, we can't really ratchet back these bonuses. It wouldn't be fair. It, it, it's bizarre. So the answer, the short answer is, I haven't got a clue. So if you know what to do, it would be great. But but can I just say one quick more thing? But but it does affect us all. It really does. Because we see, we look at these guys and we say, wait a minute, you've driven the economy into the ground. How come you're worth so much? It doesn't seem fair. And that alienates people. But your question about education is crucial, absolutely crucial. It can't solve the problem. But on the other hand, it can even out many of the inequalities. We were talking about this at lunchtime, so I apologize to my table mates for repeating this, but what happens with government, including government right here in this province, is they say, oh, well, we've got a problem with money. Let's cut education. So in public education now, people are getting laid off at schools. And people sometimes are getting laid off at schools, guidance counselors and people that can provide real help to those kids that are disadvantaged, they're out the door. It, 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 it doesn't make. Uh, and the other thing they've done just last week is cut uh, programs for uh, retraining. So if someone is out of a job and they say, "I want to upgrade my skills," sounds like a good thing to me. Well, they don't have money for that anymore. So, so it, it's almost as if when we get an opportunity to do the right thing, we do the wrong thing. <laughs> it's a good question, though. I like the question, even though I can't answer it. Hi, my name is Knut Petersen. Thanks for coming. Very good talk. Uh, my question is, uh, since corp- the corporate agenda is to have, to some degree at least, have unlimited amounts of cheap labor, uh, and since corporations have a big influence on governments, much more so than we probably know, uh, do you think that plays into the to the whole question about education and and uh, having people uh, getting out of the doldrums of, of low wages, do you think that have any bearing on, on the government policy in that regard? Um, again, uh, my goodness, I heard Sackpaw was good, but boy, these are the tough questions. Um, I mean, in some ways, that's kind of a cynical, you know, question. Uh, In other ways, um, it it might well be the case that that, that there's interest in not having a a very highly educated workforce. Um, The the way some academics are are treated, um, the notion that we're kind of eggheads and we don't have a practical interest in the world, you know, we're doing all this for fun, um, which – you know, can be fun. I'm not denying it. Research can be great fun. But on the other hand, when um, you see governments calling on somebody like me around the world for advice, and I, you see, I was in Alberta for 15 years before, so and then I was here six years before that, so I've been in Alberta a long time. And I always found it kind of funny that here I am going to the Edmonton Airport when I was at the University of Alberta, flying out to advise Tony Blair, and the legislature right over there doesn't know there's expertise across the river. It seems kind of interesting. So I wondered about that many times. As for cheap labor, um, the greatest pool of cheap labor, of course, is overseas, and many jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs. I mean, we all have clothes on today that probably were made in Malaysia or China or someplace with very cheap labor. Um, and so that's where the cheapest labor is, and 
and, and uh, not well educated, of course. Um, but yeah, there might be something to what you say, but again, I don't know the answer. So I thank you for the question. <laughs> Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. <clears throat> In the early 1990s, George Bush took a whole lot of American CEOs on a trip to Japan. And I remember that the word at that time was how appalled the Japanese were at the incredible wages that were being paid to the American CEOs of companies. Now, I noticed that you mentioned that there was a difference with, with Japan on your sh schedule there. Could mm -hmm. you elucidate us on that, please? Mm -hmm. Now, that is an interesting question and really ties in with the previous two questions in an interesting kind of way. Uh, Japan is n not my area of expertise, but it is one of well, several of my other projects relate to Japan. Um, so, so I do have some interest in that. Japan, as you noticed on that one slide, has a very low, relatively low, income inequality dispersion. And that really speaks volumes about the society. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any, but it does have, it does have a very limited uh, uh, income dispersion. And Japan is, is a society that has built its risk insurance um, to a large extent on a corporatist model. So that means that they don't have a lot of public support. It's a kind of corporate uh, family model. The, the mixture is family and corporate support. So pensions are expected to come from there. And until very recently in Japan, there was this concept of um, corporate loyalty. We're all in it together. We're, we're trying to do the best for the company. And that is not so much the case anymore. It's, it's changing. But at the same time, that kind of we're all in it together, um, we all should be sort of devoted to the same task, has led to this, 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 this ideal of the CEO not making, uh, making more, but not a whole lot more than the people on the floor. The, the challenge in Japan, of course, relates to gender, that, that the, the company men... Uh, are largely male. That, I mean, that's why they're called company men, of course. Um, and women have not been much in the labor force, but that's changing too, and women are getting more and more educated. I gave a talk at the University of Tokyo where the, the majority of the people were women in the audience, young, very, very well-educated, very eager women. And so one of the things that Japan has done, which is quite innovative, they said, well, we have, they have the oldest a country in the world demographically the oldest. So how did, what did they say a, a policy solution was to an aged, an aged population? Daycare. A very interesting concept because they said, well, we have this sort of army of women who are not working for the, in the paid labor force because they can't find childcare or whatnot. So if we want to get them into the workforce because we don't have enough young workers, let's get them in and provide daycare. So they're, they're quite innovative in that respect uh, and very much value education. So, so the concept of education, I'm, I'm trying to get these questions together here because I sort of fudged those first two because I didn't know how to answer them. But education certainly is, is, is a factor in the leavening of, of inequality uh, differences. Although it stops once you get a PhD, then you're not paid like a CEO of a company. It doesn't work that way. But, but generally speaking, people that have uh, higher education are paid better. There's a premium for that education. 
throughout their lives that people uh, who don't have a higher education aren't. So it is a leavening. So it's a very good question and very interesting that you notice that. Hello, my name is Isaac. My name is Isaac. Thank you for the speech. I'll add that too because it is very interesting and fascinating. My question is about the conditions that economic inequality cause. Like you talked about privileges accumulating and disadvantages accumulating. Now, when you're poor, I can understand part of the disadvantage is bad, uh, poor education, maybe so uh, poor diet, so, which does have effects. But I'm more interested in the psychological factors. Mm -hmm. And if you could elucidate on that and speak maybe about how easy it is to um, ameliorize it and mm -hmm. fix it, rather. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for your compliment. And again, a very good question. Now, I'm not a psychologist, so, so that's, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so, so I can't really answer that fully. But the question of, of how inequalities play out, particularly among poor children, is something that has been studied a lot, that it's not just poor diet. Um, but poor diet plays a huge role. You know, if you come to school hungry, uh, you can't focus on it. But if you come to school without warm coats, without warm boots, you get sick more often. But kids make fun of you. And kids are merciless in making fun of people and sort of ganging up on poor children and, and really discriminating against them in a fundamental way. And it's been, it's been shown that that can damage a child in the sense that they feel the unfairness of it all. And they don't, they don't want to raise their hand. They want to kind of hide. Um, and, and so they're not encouraged. Somehow they're hidden in the classroom because they're so shy or quiet or embarrassed or something. And so they don't want to, they're not singled out by the teacher to, to move forward. And it just sort of, it builds on itself until the kid feels really devastated by the fact of the parent's circumstance. And the darn thing is that there are, that intelligence is not guaranteed when you're rich although some people think it is, but it isn't necessarily. So there are a whole lot of really, really bright kids that are born in bad circumstances. And I think, who the heck are we as a society to say we don't value them? We need every bit of intelligence we can get to solve these crazy problems that exist in the world. So why would we not put as much resources as we possibly could into those children in order to have them succeed to the highest of their ability for their own sake, but also because we could benefit and because then they wouldn't cost us a bundle down the line when they're stealing stuff or in a mental hospital or, you know, doing something ghastly uh, because, because they were badly treated when they were kids. It, it just doesn't make any sense at all as a society, and I never understood how we, how we can say to ourselves, oh, well, we can just cast those people aside. What? We got lots of problems to solve. If we got bright little kids, let's educate them, and and maybe they'll solve the problems we face in the world. Uh, but so the psychology, the damage we do to to kids is quite frightful. And if you see this in the in the in the U.S. context, I keep referring to that. But this this study has opened my eyes to a lot of things in the U.S. And of course, when I was there, I was a very I was like a participant observer because the election was going on, the primaries, the the collapse in the economy, and they don't allow me to vote, so I just watched all this, you know. Um, it is, was taxation without representation in many ways because they took my taxes, but they, in fact, they're taking them on the 15th of April, uh, but uh, they don't allow me to vote. So that's an interesting kind of a concept for tea partiers. But, 
But the notion that interests me there is how absolutely stratified everything about the education system is there. And you don't see that as much in Canada. And the way it works in the public school level is that children go to neighborhood schools, whereas in Canada the neighborhood schools are much broader. They have a bigger catchment region, and in Edmonton you don't necessarily need to go to a school in your neighborhood. You can go to any school. I don't know how it works here because I'm new here, so I don't know that. But the fact is that there, if you live in a rich neighborhood, you go to a better school. And if you live in a poor neighborhood, you go to a ghastly school. And then it goes on from there so that you want to get into a good university. A good university, from their point of view, is somebody mentioned Harvard, um, you know, Cornell, Yale, these schools, and they cost a lot of money. And they do have scholarships for poor students, but it's a tiny percentage of the, of the school population. So a lot of parents plan when their kids are in daycare, they're going to go to those big schools. where And they t- put them in the right schools throughout, and so they scoot right up. Uh, whereas poor children are in disadvantaged schools to start with because of the neighborhood they're in, and they don't get those advantages. So the, the thing is written into the geography of the place, and it's a very different concept than in Canada, really, uh, because we don't have private schools for one thing. I mean, we have them, but they're small and they're, you know, religious schools for the most part. And and so, but there, the the, the emphasis on those schools are huge. Uh, and and that increases the 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 distribution of inequality uh, through education, and it starts right at square one. My name is Tad Mitsui. Thank you, Susan, for coming, and uh, thank you for your presentation. He wants to dance with you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what a blessing it is for Lesbridge that you're here. Oh, thank you. And uh, you are warned, just like Trevor, you're going to be one of the Sakpa's favorites. <laughs> and uh, you'll be called upon from time to time to make presentations. That's a nice one. I'm point. going to uh, mention uh, an idea, which I don't agree, but I don't have a... Uh, intelligent answer, so I would like you to answer. And the idea (laughs) goes like this. Poverty is a fact of life. We need poor people in order to carry on as a competitive society. Inequality encourages competition. And competition is a source of all good things, like excellence, progress, etc. What would you say to that? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your sweet compliments. That's very nice. So I should become an honorary person involved with SACPA. I'd be happy to do that. But if I have to answer questions like that, I'm not sure. I might hide. The reality is that some of that has been way overplayed, the notion that competition brings out excellence. Competition can bring out um, head injuries in hockey. <laughs> so, so the notion that, that it's always a good thing is not necessarily the case. Um, but the notion that inequality makes us try harder, the concept there is that mobility exists. And this is where really it's quite fascinating because, again, the imagery in the United States is the American dream, mobility, you know, you can come there and become anything you want. Mobility in reality, and this is the latest findings, is less in the United States than it is in Canada 
And that means people starting out with little and going into something big, not necessarily, you know, becoming millionaires, but rising up, being better than their parents were. And mobility is higher in Canada than it is in the United States, and that's true for immigrants as well in Canada. But wait for this. Mobility is higher in the U.K. than it is in the United States. So the image of mobility in the United States is more a myth than a reality. And it's not, it, but as a myth, it's very effective to get people who, and this goes to, to your question, to get people who are um, uh, not well-educated, uh, presuming that they can rise up and acting as if they can. And the credit crisis, to some extent, was built on that notion. The notion that a whole lot of minority groups in the states, and they call them minority groups, uh, Hispanics, uh, African Americans, new immigrants, were told that the American dream was to own your own house even if you couldn't afford it. So we will lend you the money to, to accept that myth. So it's almost that one myth goes on another one, goes on another one, and the way to rise up, you end up further down because you end up in debt further, and then your house ends up to be worth less than what you all wanted, but you still have this image that you're mobile, that you're moving up. So it's a very interesting kind of a, 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 an image of, of myth and reality that, that interplay and have had disastrous results, actually. But that myth is very prevalent. Hi. Ian McKenna. And uh, well, we said all we needed to say at the table for you coming here. <laughs> you Don't need to say anything. Okay, no more questions then. Okay. <laughs> This is an easy one. Um, the public health, obviously important, and you indicated that, that uh, public health uh, was, was really important with regard to longevity and, and so on. Why has it taken the United States so long? Oh, that's the hardest question yet. <laughs> you said it was easy. And, you uh, lied to me. <laughs> could, could I also add the fact that uh, why is the Alberta government uh, oh, so anxious to have a private system um, rather than the public one we have. So I wonder if uh, there is anything in there. If not, we can all go home. <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to have to go home. Uh, you know, many, many people have asked why the, the U.S. Uh, is the only country in, in the developed world that doesn't have some kind of provision for public health insurance. Incidentally, I should make the point clear. Public health and public health insurance are two separate things. We are not particularly great at public health. That's another question. Uh, we're okay, but we're not great. And our third-party uh, insurance is publicly sponsored, but, of course, the system is private. Doctors are private entrepreneurs. They're in private practice. Uh, you know, so, so our public health, I know you know that, but I just thought I'd make it clear. In the United States, the whole, the whole thing is private, uh, and one of the things we talked about um, at the table, which not everybody heard, so we couldn't have covered it all, um, was the notion that the new the changes in the U.S. Uh, with, respond, with respect to health care that were so frightfully vitriolic um, are in fact very very minor changes, and they put no no uh, no cap or no change to the private insurance system. In fact, I don't know how many of you noticed, but the day after the legislation was passed, the healthcare uh, healthcare industries they all the stock shot right up, and the, uh, they were all. So if anybody has stock in them, you, you did well because they're they're all saying, "Whoa, well, this is great!" Now we got more people buying insurance. That's what it amounts to. So it really didn't change anything. 
Okay, so why is it the way it is? Well, there's historical reality. Uh, one was horse trading, and, and Trevor may know more about this than I do, so feel free to kick in. You're supposed to be moderating this. You're not helping us. It's going just great. I'll take some credit for how well Yeah, started. he stands there. Man, that ain't helping me at all. Okay, so some of it's historic that um, the horse trading occurred, for example, with the New Deal. Uh, with with Roosevelt, uh, the, at at that stage when Social Security was brought into the United States, there was a plan, believe it or not, to have to have public health insurance. Health, uh, but but the lobby for it was an interesting coalition because there was a lobby for unions that coincided and coalesced with the lobby for corporations that both said, no, 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 we can't have that. We should protect old people, so we should have Social Security. But the union said, and this was rather shocking at the time, but the union said, and I've documented this in a paper, the union said, well, you know, nobody would join a union if we, had, if we could provide the insurance through public health. So, so we've got to keep the union movement alive. Of course, the union movement's not too alive in the United States, but that's what they said at the time. Uh, that, that, and the corporation said, well, you know, it would be a benefit for working for our corporation if we could offer health insurance. That's what they were committed to at the time. They didn't realize it was going to cost them more than it costs to make a car to pay for the health insurance. But at that time, they thought this was a good deal. You know, you can offer an employee a benefit like this. So that the unions and the corporations got together and said, no, 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 that's not a priority. Our priority is to provide some some uh, insurance for, for those poor old people who are retiring. And at the time, um, there wasn't exactly a lobby for old people, but uh, there was a lot of poverty among older people. So that was a big, big issue that people were concerned about. So essentially, they dumped the, the option for health care. And people have said about our health insurance that it was a propitious moment. And if it had, hadn't happened at that historic moment, it might not have ever happened. Uh, and of course, now I don't think it would happen. And your example of Alberta uh, turning the, the clock in the other direction um, uh, you know, suggests that 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 it wouldn't happen now here if, if we tried to if we said let's imagine we had a private system here private health insurance we couldn't now say okay let's change it um, so so there are a number of factors and I haven't figured them all out yet but I found this historic uh, coalition of unions and corporations very interesting. In Canada, it was the opposite. It was the notion that we partly brought in public health insurance to prevent. I mean, people say Tommy Douglas was doing all this. Yes, he was. But there was also a movement to prevent riots in the streets by, um, you know, there were some quite militant unions and militant people after the Depression and in the Depression in Canada, the March on Winnipeg, the, the various riots, March on Ottawa, the Winnipeg riots, things like that. And people said, well, you know, one way to appease that Rather than think of it as a left-wing plot, it was actually a corporatist plot to appease that by saying, "Let's provide, uh, let's provide health health insurance," and, and the corporations generally said, "Yeah, that's a good deal. Then we won't have to pay for it." <laughs> so, so it worked the opposite way at a different historic moment in Canada. But it's a very interesting question: why we went in such different directions? But not an easy question. And, you know, one of the great, uh, one of the measures of a really great talk uh, is the fact that it leaves you hungering for even more. Uh, so this, this was fabulous. This is really good. And uh, thank you very much for attending. And